ready to continue with our analysis of the difficult concentrated text that is the Yoga Sutra. In our last reading, we have gone together with Patanjali into the analysis of forms of Samadhi. Patanjali has mentioned things about the so-called Samprajnata Samadhi, and then he has mentioned also the eight forms of Samprajnata Samadhi all in all, and then he has mentioned the A Samprajnata Samadhi, mentioning that even this last one is a form of Samadhi which is still allowing the existence of some causal residues in the causal body, the so-called samskaras or vasanas, and therefore that even this asamprajnata samadhi, if it is not continued forcefully, it will not lead to a total condition of liberation, it will lead to either continuation of samadhi in the next life, or to some forms of divine rebirth continuing the evolution in other spheres, such as deities and so forth. And uh, Patanjali continues for a little while with the analysis of this state of Samadhi. He has to say something, and actually after that he immediately changes the subject, he goes much further, and at some point in the end of this chapter he will come back onto it and reconclude the theme of the forms of Samadhi, so as to close down that subject. I am going to read now from the Sutra number 20. The Sutra number 20 reads, Others, which means other than those mentioned above, those who were uh, going into a new birth or going into a divine birth, so others, they can attain to a Samprajnata Samadhi, through the qualities of, the text literally says, through the preceding practice of, and a few qualities are, a few practical issues are counted here, through the qualities of faith, strength, memory, discrimination, and absorption derived from the Samprajnata Samadhi respectively. Basically, it says if one continues the spiritual practice and is not getting stuck as in the examples mentioned before, then automatically one is doing this on account of, of the development of some other prior qualities. Those qualities are almost universal in yoga. You find them often mentioned as prerequisites to yoga, as qualities which ensure that you will go far into yoga, and uh, they are, first of all, the first one listed here is the Sanskrit word shraddha, which is commonly translated as faith. The word uh, faith is perhaps not the most correct translation of the word shraddha, but it is the most commonly used. It is uh, different from mere belief, because shraddha can be had only after having a glimpse of the truth because else you should realize that there are beliefs which are aberrant. Try to think about all the people who are joining all kinds of aberrant sects, and they are characterized by what they call belief. I believe. It's not just enough to believe. Here this belief is a belief which is rooted in an actual experience of the spiritual reality. 
Therefore, this Shraddha is faith, but mixed up with the perception of reality. Remember that technically speaking, it is possible that somebody should have a perception of reality, of the reality with a capital R, and this, by this I mean an actual perception of reality, and at the same time somebody should not have a perfect faith. Remember that people don't believe even the things which they see with their own eyes, and therefore it is not possible always to put these two together. Most of you here, they think, oh, if I would just have a vision of the divine consciousness, even for five minutes, then for sure I would believe. This is just another game of the mental monkey, because things are not so. There are many people who have been confronted with high spiritual realities, and they witness things such as, today I had a divine state of consciousness, and tomorrow my mind popped up with the question, but does there exist any God actually? It's kind of, what are you talking about? Are you stupid? Haven't you just been experiencing that yesterday? So what? The mind is a monkey, and therefore, uh, remember that this faith is a very important issue. Some people have faith without having had experiences, and therefore that is a sort of a blind faith. It's not that the blind faith sometimes cannot be accurate. I can believe somebody who has had the right vision, and then I'm sharing their faith, although I myself have not seen it. Like, I believe that Buddha saw things right, and I believe the way Buddha believed. Or I can believe that Jesus saw things perfectly the way they are, and therefore I can believe what Jesus believed. This is a kind of borrowing somebody's faith, and it can be actually a very good faith which saves you. But more often than not, this faith is actually blending up with wishful thinking, with hysteria, with all kinds of other components, and it becomes very often a phantasmagoric faith, like it is happening in so many uh, fundamentalistic, fanatic, dogmatic, sectary, and all kinds of other directions and tendencies. And uh, therefore, it has to be, the yogis say, somehow or another, it, this faith, it has to be the real thing, because an aberrant faith is completely wrong. Remember that ultimately, and this is especially where Buddha is coming into the game, and the yogis who have been working a lot on Ajna Chakra, and Patanjali's Yoga Sutra being so much on Ajna Chakra, it is impossible that Patanjali himself should have ignored this subject, that actually faith in a enlarged meaning, in a broader meaning, it means actually to have a kind of confidence, faith in oneself, faith in something. It's normally in the Western language, if we say faith, we generally tend to ascribe it as faith into God, that I believe in God. But there is a faith which says, I believe that the fire is burning me. And if I manage to bring myself to the opposite faith, that the fire does not burn me, and in both of these faiths there is nothing about God, it's just a matter of fire burns me or not, it's a hypnosis, it's a self-hypnosis, 
and then I can dance on fire. I can walk on fire. The NLP practitioners, most of them being completely atheistic, materialistic, they can determine people to walk on fire without getting burned. And therefore they create a faith that faith has nothing to do with God. It's a faith in some phenomena of nature and the interaction of the human being and of the human mind with those. Therefore remember that that's why Patanjali when he speaks about faith, he speaks at the same time with a tone of caution because he knows what faith is. There can be faith like people who believe madly in a phenomenon or in something and their own faith blinds them to the rest. Those of you who have been studying in this school already the laws of suggestion and self-suggestion and how this works, you know already that there are people who can create completely miraculous phenomena, paranormal phenomena, because they believe or they don't believe, which actually means that they believe not, they believe in the opposite, into one thing or another. So, some people who simply believe this is not possible, it has never been possible and it never will be, they tend to create with their minds such synchronicities that in their presence you can't even demonstrate that thing. It does not appear. Uh, there is a very, very significant story from some 20 years ago when one of the last uh, publicly levitating Babas of India got fed up with all the um, skeptical journalism coming up in the Indian main trend newspapers and he simply tried to put them down and he simply said, I forgot now his name, I read long time ago the story, he simply came forth and he simply said, look, to cut this crap with all of you in the newspapers telling that the levitation from yoga in the old days was just a legend and a hoax, I who can levitate, I'm simply going to make a public demonstration of levitation so that we, you can come and take photos from under my bottom and see if there is anything under or if I'm cheating in any way. And he arranged with one of his uh, sympathizers, he had some fans, in Bombay, in the posh uh, society of Bombay, and this guy arranged a real, real phantasmagoric setting in which this guy was supposed to levitate on a platform in the middle of a swimming pool. So there was a floating platform in the middle of the swimming pool, and this guy was supposed to lift up and to levitate over the water. You can realize, and they invited the Indian newspapers and everything, Everybody who was somebody and who had something to say was invited to the crushing evidence of whoever Baba this was uh, to show them levitation so that they can test it. And uh, you can imagine that nobody would do this knowing that they actually can't do it because it would be like hanging yourself in public. It would be like completely useless. If you know that you can't do it, you can perhaps... Uh, preserve the mystery, say, well, this is not for all the ignorance, and play all kind of games like, I know, but I can't show you, or something like this. But nobody will pledge themselves to do this in public, and the history says that this guy had before demonstrated levitation in repeated occasions, on repeated occasions, he had been levitating in front of some of his fans, sympathizers, small groups of people, faithful from the Kumbha Mela and the such. There was only one interesting difference. The difference was that now he had to levitate in front of 400 skeptical people. 
and he never considered this. His arrogance was so big that he never realized that this was more than what he could do. He couldn't see the limits. And then he found himself in the Bombay posh society with cameras and newspapers and everybody filming and everybody trying to see what it was. And he just became red in his face on that platform, uh, squinting himself uh, as much as possible. And he could not levitate in front of everybody. He simply, his levitation switched off. His power, his faith was com was confronted with their faith. He was one who knew, I can do it, and there were 400 who believed this guy absolutely can't do it, as in, he's an imposter. Well, in this situation, he actually was confronted with dispelling so much lack of faith that by a balance of forces, his capacity disappeared. In that moment, it's exactly, if you want to put it like this, it's exactly like somebody who has stage fright, somebody who has repeat a, a role, and wants to, is perfectly prepared to play Hamlet, but exactly when about to go out on the stage and play Hamlet, he suddenly forgets all the lines and all the replies because of the stage fright. And then he's kind of exactly like this, in this way, this guy probably got into a mental emotional state which prevented him. It was like a stage fright and he couldn't find himself because the pressure was so vast. And then the ridiculousness reached the top because this guy realizing that, oh my God, my levitation is not working today and I don't know why the heck this is not working. He tried to save the day by doing something else. He knew that he could walk on water as well. So he simply stood up and he stepped on the water from the pool because he said, at least if I don't levitate, let me show them something. And in the moment when he stepped on the water, bloom, he just went like an axe to the bottom of the pool. And this was the end of his public career. He covered himself in shame and in ridiculousness completely. And that was it. Try to realize psychologically a man who could do neither of those would not even have tried in public because would have made a fool of themselves as this guy actually did. This is the story about the faith. The faith is an element which comes from Ajna Chakra. It is a deep mental conviction, belief, which doesn't have something to do with God. You can believe something in something, even if it has absolutely no correlations with any divine state of consciousness or anything divine eternal. Again, the NLP practitioners say you get burned on your feet if you walk on hot coal, because you believe that red, the red coal burns you. If we hypnotize you that the red coal doesn't burn you, you walk on coal and you dance on hot coals, and they don't burn you. And that's the end of the story. It's a matter of belief. Therefore, here Patanjali speaks about a belief which is not just some NLP-induced belief, hypnotic belief, whatever, ab aberrant belief. He speaks about the belief into the actual nature of the self. The next essential quality, he calls it virya, which is a name which you have in the theory of brahmacharya, that brahmacharya produces virya, which means generally efficiency, manliness, extraordinary energy, and it refers to energy physical as well as mental, and it is translated as heroism as well, efficiency, as I said, and it involves a strong will and determination. That's a second factor which is often mentioned in the spiritual literature of India. People who don't have a little bit of heroism 
they can't make it. You have to be a bit crazy. You have to be a bit of a hero. The people who think, well, I don't know if I can do this, they can't do it. It's obviously. Only the people who, like the great Vivekananda said, who say, I can drink the ocean and I can move the mountains. That kind of person who is having this a little bit of madness. It's like, I can whatever. If I need to run away from home like Yogananda or like, I can do it. I can do whatever. Whatever it takes, I can do it. This kind of thing is actually virya. It is for the yogis of India. It is a form of extraordinary energy. And therefore, this is put by Patanjali as another condition of developing the spirituality. I hope you re remember that this sutra continues the previous one and the previous one said if Asamprajnata Samadhi is not followed up systematically it will not lead to Nirvana, it will lead to some intermediary accomplishments. And here Patanjali started this by saying the others, which means those who don't fail, they attend and they are previously marked by faith, by virya and by the other two which I mentioned in a second. And therefore, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that these are conditions which associated with the state of Samadhi, they make you succeed. For example, you need to have a state of Samadhi, but at the same time you need to get faith together with it. Here, the formulation of a great Tibetan yogi. A great Tibetan yogi, actually from the province of Dolpo in today's Nepal, a biography of one of these yogis somewhere in the 14th, 15th, 16th century, I forgot. I'm quoting from a work published by an eminent Tibetanologist, David Snellgrove from Oxford, who wrote, among others, this excellent book, which is called Four Lamas of Dolpo, which he simply unearthed some biographies of eminent yogis and lamas and translated them. And uh, one of these four lamas whose biographies are rendered in that book is a great yogi. And this guy is one of the, he is par with Milarepa. Milarepa is legendary in the Tibetan tradition because he was a master of tapas. He did tapas like crazy, like almost nobody can imagine the amount of tapas which Milarepa did. Well, this guy merit intellect must be the twin brother of Milarepa because he has done at least as much as Milarepa, only that he is less known, less famous than Milarepa. And at some point, this guy goes into retreats, and the Tibetan retreats, in case you didn't know, they are the classical retreats where you spend alone, you don't see anybody, you don't talk to anybody, it's complete isolation, and you do nothing else but spirituality, and they last three years, three months, three weeks, and three days. And why not three hours as well? So basically, they are somewhere a bit more than three years. And this guy, being at some point favored, he says, well, then I decided to go on a retreat. So I went to that propitious, propitious place, to that uh, auspicious place, and I did a retreat of three years, which he means three years, three months, and all the rest. And he says, after I have done this retreat, I, have, I thought I felt really good, and I have done one more retreat of three years. And he says, after I have done this one more retreat of three years, I have done one more retreat of three years. Basically, the guy spent some ten years in retreat non-stop. And then he uses an incredible sentence, which makes us feel really embarrassed sometimes. He says, after having done those three retreats, 
I started having some faith in my spiritual practice. This is what had to be said. That simply means it's not enough to practice. You have to build a faith as well, because without that faith, things are not going. I've seen people hesitant in their practice. They practice, and then they don't even know if their practice is good or something like this. They don't know if their practice is strong enough. If, you know, I'm practicing yoga for three years, but if I'm getting a flu, I'm sitting and scratching my head if I should do pranayama or if I should take antibiotica or something like this. What belief do I have in my practice if after three years I'm still contemplating taking antibiotica for a flu or something like this? I don't have faith because if I really had faith, you cannot ask this sentence, this from Milarepa or from Merit Intellect or from any others. Therefore, these things are going hand in hand. It is to reach the vision, to reach the breakthrough, to reach the spiritual realization, but at the same time to develop some collateral qualities which are like, pi which are like pillars which are sustaining your practice and which are allowing you not to relapse, not to fall back, but to continue your practice even more. The first was faith. You should practice until you feel that you have faith in your practice. Remember, I gave you the simple example with this, that uh, uh, are you believing in the efficiency of this or that? I once knew a yogi. This guy was uh, doing some powerful forms of yoga on Ajna Chakra, and he had a pretty tough, he was a fire sign astrologically, pretty Manipuristic. He worked a lot on tapas, on Manipura and on Ajna Chakra, he was very powerful on this tandem of these two chakras, and one day he wanted, not that he wanted, but the time came that he should test himself, and he had faith in his practice. What did he do? He just, of course, went to the dentist to take care of some dental problem which he had, and he had a pretty complicated dental problem because he hadn't been visiting the dentist for a long, long time. And when he went to the dentist, first thing which he did, he said, no, I would like you not to give me any anesthesia. I want the whole thing because I am a yogi and I want to test my power to resist pain. Kind of, yeah, I believe in my practice, you know, no anesthesia. I'm going the full Monty to see here, can I hypnotize myself? Can I, you know, can I really do pratyahara? Can I stop my sensations? Can I focus on something else? And so this is faith in one's practice. It is kind of, I want to check my faith in my practice. And therefore... Remember that this is a powerful qualification and without this one is feeble. The second was virya, extraordinary energy, efficiency, heroism, strong will, determination, a bit of madness associated with it. The third factory mentioned by Patanjali here is memory. Memory called here smriti in Sanskrit, which means exactly that, memory remembrance we can bring the realization of consciousness into the conscious field. That means that it's a kind of constant remembrance. Yes, I have reached this thing, but I'm kind of constantly trying to get back to it and to remember, hey, I have been there, I have done that, yes. So I have faith in my practice, but at the same time, I'm having a wish for remembrance. Then the other type, the other things which are mentioned here by Patanjali, the discrimination and absorption, 
he, uh, the, this intelligence, this discrimination, according to the psychology of yoga generally, is of two types. The worldly intelligence, which is required for success in daily life, and the higher type of di discrimination, which develops as a result of the samprajnata samadhi. We can say that there are different levels of ajna chakra. Some people are very smart in a worldly way, but they can be completely blind to spiritual things. Some people can be pretty smart in some spiritual discrimination, but be not very smart in the worldly issues. Here Patanjali seems to favor the spiritual discrimination, which allows to people to discriminate spiritually, but the sutra is written in such a way that it can be read as both forms of discrimination are involved. Anyhow, enough with this. Here Patanjali has prepared the ground because he is slowly, slowly marching. This text is marching towards showing us it started with Samprajnata Samadhi in its eight forms, Samprajnata Samadhi and its pitfalls that if you don't take it far enough, it's still not enough. And now it tells us what will take it far enough, the cultivation of all this faith, heroism and all the rest. And actually, uh, slowly, slowly, Patanjali never forgets that in this text he is going to present the states of consciousness and the accomplishments for spirituality. And that is why he is going deeper and deeper. He is not losing track, although sometimes he seems to make a parenthesis here or there. So he just told us that actually to go further you need some further qualifications. And now he is telling us something auxiliary, he makes a break, a small break, and in the next few sutras, he tells us about some of the other qualifications which contribute to reach to this level of asamprajnata samadhi, which is at the threshold of going over or staying and falling a little bit back. The sutra number 21 is actually consistent with something which in our yoga courses is commented pretty extensively in one of the evening lectures. This sutra is translatable approximately as those who have an extremely intense aspiration or determination attain asamprajnata samadhi very soon. This simply says, if you have a very intense aspiration, determination, you will attain the asamprajnata samadhi soon. This is a sutra which speaks almost by itself. It gives one of the fundamental, if not the most fundamental qualification for the practice of hardcore spirituality, which simply means intense aspiration. Intense aspiration means you would do anything. How far can this go? Well, this is how far it goes. In some situations, maybe we don't know how much aspiration some spiritualists have had. We know that Ramakrishna had so much aspiration that he was like a madman, even as a child, that as a teenager at least, that he had so much aspiration that at some point he was about to take off, to take away his own life, to commit suicide. Others have been a little bit in the same kind of dramatic situation, like they would push themselves to incredible lengths, the famous Kalidasa, 
one of the biggest poets and mystics of the Indian Middle Ages, he was exactly in the same condition, that he was meditating with Kali, and uh, he couldn't reach, and then when he finally wanted to kill himself, seems it's a kind of an obsessive tradition, this one, that he finally reached enlightenment, and then he became enlightened, and he got, among others, an amazing oratoric gift, and he became perhaps the most legendary poet and uh, playwriter and uh, artist, uh, this kind of writing artist, writer, generally, let's say, of the Middle Ages, of the medieval India. And therefore, I'm telling you all this because you have to see where this is, what does intense aspiration means. Here is an example, and it's an example which just pops up to my mind, and uh, I don't know even if it's the best or the strongest, but it's an example which shows e exemplificatively how in one person you can have this kind of extreme aspiration. For some of you it may sound frightening, and of course it is a bit frightening for everybody who hasn't been hit by it. As long as it didn't hit you, you don't know exactly what we are talking about, and you are probably asking yourself, can somebody go as far as that? Whoa, you know, it's kind of, what would it take for me? You'd never know what it takes before uh, it happens. I was re-seeing recently, unfortunately, a very bad copy of the movie Beckett, one of the Academy Award movies from 62 or 64, I've forgotten now, where again, a man who was just a libertine, a politician, a man who was wasting his time, and a man without backbone and principles and morals and anything, suddenly he gets an amazing transformation, because he is asked to bear an important spiritual responsibility, he is basically anointed to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, and suddenly he changes 180 degrees in a matter of a second. All his life, changes, and those who did, who believed that Thomas Beckett was just an idiot, they suddenly were amazed, because this man became like a roaring lion in a fraction of a second. Something broke in his heart. Here is another example, the one which I wanted to give from the beginning. It's the legendary story of Saint Mary of Egypt. The story tells us that Saint Mary of Egypt was a woman who lived for 17 years in sensual, sexual pleasures. The history, maybe to protect her reputation a bit, or maybe that's the case, tells us that Mary was not actually a prostitute, a formal prostitute, because she was never taking money for what uh, she did, but uh, she simply enjoyed good life. And therefore, she was just going with all the rich boys from Alexandria, in endless parties, night after night, day after day, and her lot was that she was living in palaces and wonderful places, and although she was a nobody, she just lived in luxury for years and years. The history says 17 years. Then at some point, she is uh, shocked to find out that some of her old acquaintances, some of these young uh, posh uh, men from Alexandria, uh, they are going on a trip, they are embarking, they are going to the harbor to a trip, and that trip is no more and no less but to Palestine. What were they going to Palestine for? Oh, there was a century of religious fervor, and there was something really, really big, 
about uh, the discovery of the cross upon which Jesus had been crucified. Therefore, this is somewhere in the 4th century AD. And uh, either it was fashionable or not, or these people were already converted or not, but these people were going to see the big miracle in Jerusalem or something like this. And Mary, suddenly she feels a thing that, well, it's posh, she would like to go there, it's interesting. She has never been traveling on the sea. Of course, she cannot afford the seafare. So she does her last act of uh, uh, sexual compromise. She simply gives herself to the captain of the boat. She says, if you take me to Jerusalem, I give you the little thing to play with it all the way, you know, and I'll be your lover during the trip and you get me to Palestine, right? So that is also done. And then she gets there, and then she gets, apparently the story says, she gets in one of these long religious processions, which is supposed to worship the cross of Jesus, you know, the kind of uh, extraordinary belief that the people had in those days, in a, a very simplified, primitive, but intense way as well. And then she is going there, and she has a shock, because in the moment when she is trying to get like people were, say, staying there, and each one of them was going to touch their head on it, to prostrate, to venerate it, to kiss it, to whatever, and you had to stay in a, to stand in a long queue for this. And in the moment when she's trying to enter that chapel, that improvised room where this is, she feels like a hand in her chest, like this, like she cannot. And she says, what the heck is this? And she tries, and she cannot. And she tries, and she cannot. And then she realized, wait a second. What's so wrong with me? Something like this. Of course, you can ask, well, was something so wrong with her? Maybe there were other terrible people there. Maybe this was her own conscience, her own subconscious consciousness, screaming from inside, and it's kind of creating this, like some sort of almost self-hypnotic, self-suggestion thing. Fact is that she had been reaching the break point in that moment. In the moment when this happened, she realized something is wrong. And in that moment she simply broke apart, she started crying in this catharsis, she simply cried her soul out for hours and hours, because she realized what kind of empty life she had been living until then, and then in the next day she went alone in the desert. What would a woman do going alone to live in the desert of Palestine, with no food, with no water, with no shelter, with no nobody? with nothing. It's an act of suicide almost. It's kind of you go, but you don't know if you'll ever come and if you'll be alive even in 48 hours from then. So this brave woman, Viria, this is Viria, madness, this efficiency, this kind of complete determination, she goes in the desert and she spent in the desert something like, I forgot now if it was 30 or 40 years. When she was found by a researcher, by a spiritual seeker, a man, when she was found 40 years later, she must have already been, God knows, 60, 70 years old at that time already. She had no clothes on her anymore because her clothes had gone since long, long time. And imagine a woman, she was living naked in the desert. She was looking, her skin was looking like wood, according to the witness of that man. It was completely scorched by the sun. And she was living there, she was eating God knows what, she was drinking God knows what in those places, but in the moment when this man, she asked for a cloth, he dropped a cloth for her, she wrapped herself in the cloth, 
and then they spend a little time together. And then this woman told him her extraordinary story. She, she describes many other things, such as, for example, a very disturbing one. She describes how she fought with her sexual desire. She said, at that time, I was a woman who was having a lot of sexual pleasure every day of my life, and having a lot, and you know how long it took me until it disappeared with I living in the desert. It took another 17 years. So she said, every time when I was getting horny, I threw myself naked on the desert sand, and I was praying naked, lying on the floor, lying on the sand, until the sun was scorching me painfully, and then my sexual desire was disappearing. So it's kind of, of course, this is an ultra-ascetic story, and definitely a non-sexual one, but it makes a point. This is a person who had an absolutely incredible change of heart, from somebody who had a carefree, careless lifestyle, in which this person didn't have any religious value, any religious care of any kind, suddenly this becomes an ascetic which becomes a model for generations and generations, like everybody says, oh my God, who can do such an asceticism? This kind of extreme transformation is included uh, in this ex intense aspiration, extremely intense aspiration. Therefore, what technology did Mary of Egypt have? She had the zilch technology. She didn't even know about even how to pray. Her prayer was something completely spontaneous from the heart. But although she knew nothing about no spiritual techniques, she reached in the moment when this guy called Zosimas or something found her, this woman, he was still doubting. Who is this woman? Living crazy woman, old woman living alone in the desert. What's the matter with her? And then at some point he asked her, let's make a prayer. Let's pray for a while together. And then they prayed. And while they prayed, this guy felt something weird and he had the curiosity and he opened an eye and looked at this woman. And she was floating one meter above the ground. And this guy got completely scared, like, what is this? You know, he felt that maybe this is some sort of something, you know, to disturb him or something. And then this woman realized his state of mind and she turned her head and she said, don't fret. Mr. Zosimas, or whatever his name was, because what you see is truth. This is what the real prayer is like. It's kind of the power of prayer is lifting me in the air. Therefore, here is a woman who didn't know mantras, didn't know yoga, didn't know pranayama, didn't know nothing. And what did her, pushed her there? Only one thing, the intense aspiration and determination. Nothing. Just like a complete, complete Madness. Today I'm going full power forever and ever in that direction. This is what Patanjali says. When you have this and when you are hit by it, it's such a blessing. When you have this, this is automatically taking you. If he says you soon reach Asamprajnata Samadhi, the abstract, the spiritual Samadhi. And he continues with something which is very scholarly in Indian mysticism, he continues in the sutra number 22 by see, saying there is a further distinction according to the degree of this aspiration which can be subdivided in mild, middling and intense. They are called Mridu, Madhya and Adhimatra in Sanskrit. 
These are classical words which are used even in Shiva Samhita, where the spiritual practitioners are divided in four classes. The mild one, which is the real, we would classify that one as a weakling, full of doubts, full of criticism, full of negativity, full of mistrust, full of doubt in his own forces, full of this and that, and who is practicing little, and that one is perhaps reaching enlightenment in 12 years, says Shiva Samhita. Then there is the middling one, the Madhya, who is the one who is going up to something like four hours of practice every day, more determined, still attached with a lot of weaknesses and attachments, and that one makes it, says Shiva Samhita, in six years, and then there is the one, the Adhimatra, the superior one, the intense one, who is very intense, full of faith, full of determination, and this one goes up till practicing like eight hours of spiritual practice per day, and this one makes it in three years of practice, and above this there is this super intense one, this Tivra, this characterized by the intense grace, who can reach Samadhi even instantaneously because of the intensity of this aspiration. So this sutra number 22, which continues number 21, is a typical scholarly addition because generally in India, the scholars always had the tendency of subdivided things into three. You have three gunas in Ayurveda, and therefore you have three types of body, kapha, pita, vata, but then you have subdivided them in three each, and then you have kapha, 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 pita, kapha, vata, pita, kapha, pita, 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 vata, and then you can even subdivide those in three. So you have kapha, 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 pita, kapha, kapha, vata, and like this, it's a system of thinking in which things can be subdivided in three, like there is that famous joke about splitting the hair about the structure of a pen or something like this. It's a silly joke in which you can analyze a pen by dividing it in three and then each part divide, subdividing it in three and it just goes on like this ad infinitum after all. So in this way, here Patanjali is fulfilling a little bit of this scholarly thing because he spoke only about the extremely intense ones but what about the ones who are not that intense. The things are not black and white. There is a graduation of disciples, of spiritual practitioners, and each and every one of them is having their chance and their place in the big picture of spirituality. So, he simply says, there is a further distinction of this story according to the degree of aspiration, mild, middling, and intense. Therefore, you can subdivide and this can give I don't know how many categories of spiritual disciples. It's not really important. The truth has been said from the very beginning. Yes, with degrees, but what takes us there is this intense aspiration, this intense determination. Milarepa had it. Everybody who did something had it. And therefore, you also must cultivate it, must find out what in you is triggering this intense determination. There are so many triggers which have been done here, one which pops to the mind. Again, Christian mystics, they have said that one of the most efficient ways to motivate yourself is to imagine that you are going to die tonight. What if this is the last day of your life? Anyone who meditates really seriously on this 
get such a carrot up their anus that they start practicing desperately because if you feel that you might be dying right now, then it's really, really urgent. It is for this reason that you know that we told to people that many people even avoid thinking of their death because this would awaken in them responsibility and the sense of emergency. And then the people preferred to live in what the Italians call the dolce far niente, which means the sweet doing nothing. Sit with a beer in a plaza and wait for your life to pass drop by drop. Not the spiritualists. The spiritualists feel that every drop of your life that passes away is inestimable, invaluable, and you cannot afford to lose it this way, even be it for a fact that you are going to face the jaws of death sooner or later, and that can be interpreted as a joke, but in fact when you are confronted with it, there is no joke to it. Therefore, I could continue with this, but uh, I don't want to go into those details because I will deviate from the main course here. Patanjali has used two sutras to tell us that intense aspiration is the thing and that it's not black or white. There are degrees of this aspiration in which everybody finds their place. And now he gives us an alternative. This alternative is same, same, but different, as we would say. It is giving us a slightly different angle to it. Here he uses the famous word from yoga, which he himself has coined and is using in chapter number two to describe the yamas and niyamas and the stages of yoga. He is using the word Ishvara Pranidhana. Ishvara Pranidhana means again aspiration, but it is aspiration more in a passive sense because it means more like surrender, offering, self-offering to Ishvara, to God. And the sutra number 23 says, or, by, which means another alternative is, by surrender to Ishvara, by surrender to God, can this Asamprajnata Samadhi be attained. He tells us another fundamental thing which is an essential of yoga, by surrender one can attain the Samadhi, by the full aspiration, surrender. He gives again a more passive, compared with the first one, which is a more virya like like a madness type of intensity, of intense aspiration. Here he uses Ishvara Pranidhana like surrendering to God, giving everything to God, thinking only of God, meditating like living only with God, living in God, for God, with God, all the time, and by this one can also reach. This is another spiritual key, another one of the pillars, one who is cultivating Ishvara Pranidhana, and I do not need to talk too much about it here because Ishvara Pranidhana is a classical lecture in our first month yoga course, and probably you have heard it already, and if you haven't heard it, it is my, if I remember correctly, it's running this week in the evening lectures in the first month, and you are going to hear it, or you can hear it, and therefore... Um, you will know exactly the elements contained in this Ishvara Pranidhana. And then he starts with a series, which let's see how far we'll manage to get into this. He starts with a series of beautiful, beautiful sutras, because now he's starting, he's coming to the point where he starts defining 
the spiritual realization itself. He has been speaking about Asamprajnata Samadhi, incomplete Asamprajnata Samadhi, how to make it complete with faith and virya, how to apply this incredible aspiration, how to or, or Ishvara Pranidana, surrender. So this is to fix the samadhi, to stabilize the samadhi, to make your spiritual experience firm and profitable in a spiritual meaning. And now he is turning towards the goal. The next sutras are some of the legendary ones, some of the often quoted ones, because they define some elements of the divine consciousness. Here we are having a big, big discussion coming up, and I think the first part of it I'll manage to convey it in this reading. He simply says the supreme cosmic consciousness, he calls it Purusha Ishvara, the spirit of Ishvara, he uses here for God, as in Ishvara Pranidana, he uses the word Ishvara, which is a rather theistic word. It is God as a person, that person being Ishvara. I'm coming back in a second upon this. <clears throat> and in this way, he starts actually explaining a little bit this Ishvara Pranidana, because he just said, by surrendering to Ishvara, Ishvara, Pranidana, by meditating upon Ishvara, by being one with Ishvara, by surrendering to Ishvara, one also reaches. And now he has to give us a hint so that we know what he's talking about in case you don't belong to the spiritual environment to which he was belonging. And then he simply defines it, and this sutra is a beautiful, beautiful definition because he tries to define God at the same time as universal consciousness and as a theistic personality. He says, this Ishvara, supreme cosmic consciousness of God, is a special infinite spirit, Purusha, untouched by afflictions, acts, their traces and their fruits. He is using all kind of words like Klesha, Karma, Vipaksha and all kind of others which are I will not go into technically explaining all of them because it's not necessary from a practical standpoint, but he gives here an amazing definition. Here is the definition of Patanjali about God. Here Patanjali is actually going very far in a beautiful way and he is making a bridge. What he is doing is a bridge between different spiritual tendencies of India. It needs a little bit of an explanation. Let's read it again. The Supreme Cosmic Consciousness, Ishvara, is a special infinite spirit, untouched by afflictions, acts, their traces and their fruits. This is having many planes which need explanation. One of them is a very provocative, thought-provocative one. In spirituality, especially in the very, very monistic spirituality, in the very, very uh, non-dualistic types of spirituality, we are coming sometimes to this point where we say, well, the consciousness is one, the Atman is one, the Atman is Brahman, and therefore we, are, we can say in a certain way, 
I am the divine consciousness. The consciousness that enlivens me is the same consciousness which enlivens the immortal gods and even more than that, it is the invisible consciousness, the immortal consciousness that underlies this universe as the universal consciousness. I am a drop and that is the ocean and therefore I am more or less one with the universal ocean of consciousness. Nevertheless, some people can say on a strictly rational level, although you can say philosophically and spiritually in terms of samadhi and meditation, I am that, aham brahmasmi, I am brahman, shivoham, I am shiva, and this is true, qualitatively speaking, it definitely is not true quantitatively speaking, and there seems to be a catch somewhere. Actually, Patanjali puts the finger exactly on that catch. Patanjali says, the cosmic consciousness of God is a special infinite spirit, a special one, he says, it's not like you and I. We are also spirit. But this consciousness of Ishvara is a special spirit, is a part, it's something else which is untouched by afflictions, kleshas, which means, in a second I'm coming to that, the impurities of the mind, acts, the karma, the acts and their fruits, and therefore he says their traces and their fruits. Let's take these factors. Impurities are kleshas, they will be defined a little bit later by Patanjali himself, <clears throat> like the mind is characterized by some impurities. The Buddhist yoga gives these impurities such as vanity, uh, anger, lust or inferior desires, jealousy and ignorance or stupidity. The five uh, great poisons of the mind. And each of these poisons is related with elements of reality, with the five tattvas and everything. And there is a whole system there. These are called in Indian yoga kleshas, the things which impurify the mind and which of course represent the limited aspects, the impure aspects of the different energies of nature. And he says, the divine spirit of Ishvara is unaffected by kleshas. For example, my spirit can be affected. But first let's list those four and then let's see how this statement can be interpreted. He says, it's an infinite spirit, which is a special infinite spirit, which is unaffected by kleshas, by impurities, which is unaffected by karma, by actions, and then he says by their traces, the traces of the actions, and their consequences, or their, how he, I call them here, their fruits. Traces, I spoke about the traces the other day when I spoke about samskaras. These are the traces. If you do an act, okay, I did an act. For example, what act? Let's take something uh, addictive. I have been addicted to some pleasure of life. I don't know which one of them to choose. One of the pleasures of life. Because of this, maybe I have created some karma, some fruits of the action. Okay, then there came another life where I decided to be shanti shanti and then I paid for those fruits and my karma has been paid. But still, although my karma is now clean, 
I still have the traces of that action, which are the samskaras, those germs, which are just waiting to sprout again if I give them the right condition. You remember that we spoke about this guy who was afraid even to see a tree because the tree will disturb his mind for weeks in a row because it will awaken some old memory from the days when his mind was full of trees and other similar things. And therefore, there is no karma, but so there is no action, there is no fruit of that action, which is the karma of it, the karmic consequence, but there are also the samskaras or the vasanas, the traces of it. All these things are things which affect our mind and life. If we have kleshas, if we are doing special acts, if we are having karma from those acts, and if we are having samskaras or vasanas, which results from those. And now Patanjali tells us, the spirit of God is a special type of transcendent spirit, which is not afflicted by any of these. Which means, I am put, yes, I can say, I am God, my spirit is the spirit of the divine, and that is true in a certain reading. But at the same time, this spirit, which is here, is conditioned, or which appears to be here, of course, is conditioned by some limitations. It can be affected by the actions, by the fruits of the actions. It can be temporarily blinded by kleshas. It can be, it is always in danger that the vasanas or the samskaras sprout back and stuff like this. I am, for example, clean. I have been meditating for 10 years, cleansed my mind, I am like a mirror, and then suddenly I go out in the world, and I am just uh, becoming impurified. There is a classical legend in India with a, <coughs> a great yogi who had a disciple, and then this disciple, he finds out that the disciple, although he was very, very developed in yoga, was a bit of a freshman. He was not experienced in the things of the world. And then the guru plays a plot on him. He simply, uh, he, he devises a ploy with this young disciple. He sends him in the village, in the valley. He says, there is a village in the valley. Go and fetch me something. And says the story, the disciple goes to the village and he never comes back because he becomes a drunk. He has discovered booze in the village and he called, what? A yogi living up on a mountain and then he collapses to booze? Yes, if he had never tried it before and he had never sorted that out, he can be taken by surprise and that is why he should have better sorted that out. The guru sent him and he said even if this guy is lost in this life, at least in the next life he would have passed this test and then he will be prepared to go further in his evolution. And he is ready to sacrifice for the purpose of evolution itself. And therefore, yes, I am immortal spirit, but at the same time this immortal spirit is put in such a condition that it is not the creator of the universe. It's a creature, and therefore it can be affected or afflicted by all these aspects. The spirit of God cannot, is not ever afflicted by any of these things which puts it in a special category. In the mind of God, so to speak, in the pure divine consciousness of this universe, there are no kleshas, there are no vasanas, 
there are no karmas or fruits of those karmas. Such things cannot ever, by definition, by Patanjali, they cannot afflict or affect in any way the divine consciousness, which automatically puts the Spirit of God in a rather privileged position. You can say, well, I and God, we are brothers in arms here. Yes, but God will never get vasanas while you get them all the time superimposed on your spirit because of the existence which you have. That is why there is actually a difference unless you reach complete union with that level of consciousness and you become one with it. And therefore, in this way, actually Patanjali does a very interesting thing. Patanjali creates a fine delimitation which is very significant in Indian philosophy and even in some Buddhist philosophy when you speak about the Buddha nature of the universe where there seems to be no distinction whatsoever. Everybody is the Buddha nature, the void is everything, I am the void, if I become the void, I am the total void and nothing but the void and the full Buddha nature, and the same in Vedanta. If I become Brahman, I am Brahman, and nothing but Brahman, and this is it, Purusha, or whatever you want to call it. And Patanjali calls a little bit the attention, says, at least as long as you have not become that indeed, you are in a qualitatively different position, because the Spirit of God has like reserved to itself some privileges, and those privileges are that it can, by definition, never be afflicted by kleshas, vasanas, karmas, and all the things which I have mentioned. And therefore, this is underlining this duality in the creation, that we are having the divine being, and we are having the creatures. That is why, for example, even in the Christian mysticism, they can never make an equation between Jesus and all the other saints which followed after. Have there been saints who walked on water? Have there been Christian saints who moved mountains with their prayer? Have there been Christian mystics who raised the dead? Yes, they have been. Then why aren't they as big as Jesus? Because Jesus is considered to be God, and therefore he is from that part. He cannot be afflicted by kleshas and all the rest. And the others are creatures they belong to the creation. Jesus is not considered as another created spirit who just came by. He was part of the divine nature incarnated directly on earth for re-establishing a spiritual truth, a revelation. And therefore, simplifying the things, here Patanjali in a very delicate way shows that there still is a distinction unless the first step has been, the last step has been reached. And that step is, I have thrown myself into the ocean and merged with the ocean irreversibly for good without any distinction whatsoever. If not, then automatically there will be a distinction. That is why many people cannot understand how is it possible that so many saints, mystics, yogis, seers, they have reported a mystical state like, uh, what was this German mystic woman from the city of Prevors? I forgot her name. Anyhow, uh, there's a classic, uh, uh, one of the great German uh, mystical personalities of the Middle Ages. 
who says, I have reached to a state of union in which any dis distinction or differentiation is completely eliminated. Like she feels that there is no distinction, there is no differentiation. And then people say, if you reach a state of such mystical union, what in Latin was called unio mystica, to mystically unite with everything. If you reach such a thing, how comes that you can come back and still be yourself afterwards? If you throw a drop in the ocean, what miracles allows that that drop should come back from the ocean and also be separate? This is exactly the mystery of this qualitative difference that there is something in the divine spirit which allows you also to keep individuality even in the middle of a total, complete union. This is very significant because it shows to us as well that in spiritual practice we are never losing our identity because that is impossible to lose. In Kashmir Shaivism we explain in full detail how that comes uh, psychologically. And finally, another thing which Patanjali says here and which is another great important spiritual truth is related with the following issue. Patanjali actually tells, and this is a place where yoga is striking very hard and where yoga is really powerful and it becomes in this way a privileged spiritual path. It is actually cutting some imperfections of some early Buddhist doctrines as well as of the Vedanta of India and some Sankhya philosophy theories in which actually Patanjali suddenly gives us a dual view upon the Supreme. The Supreme is at the same time the Purusha of the universe, this non-manifested aspect, transcendent, perfect, this infinite spirit, this Maha Purusha, this great Purusha, which is without beginning and without end, without form, without name, without limitation or characteristic, about this Mahapurusha, we cannot say, about this Paramatman, we cannot say that it is here, there, good, bad, small, big, uh, perb, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, whatever, we cannot say anything about this reality truly in terms of comparison like this, in terms of opposite. And at the same time, Patanjali is showing to us that there exists a manifested form which is very classical for Indians, which here he calls Ishvara. Ishvara, which is the Lord, is actually one manifested aspect of God. It is something of God which you can see, like the Jews and the Christians and then the Muslims. They started from this idea that some of the old prophets have seen God as an old man with a big white beard having this temper or whatever and doing this or that. And many people say, hey, come on, this is a little bit of a childish uh, image. You know, it's kind of who wants to see God as an old man floating on the clouds of heaven. Therefore, especially modern people, because they are having this... Uh, uh, lame rationalism, which means a, re a reason and a rationalism which is not doubled by a comprehensive spiritual intuition which should give the compensating factor, then many modern people, they tend to say, you know what, uh, Buddhism, 
I can accept Buddhism, you know, because Buddhism is speaking about uh, a void, the mind is the essence of everything, the essence of the mind is the void or the Buddha nature, and we are all coming from that Buddha nature, and our essence is this Buddha nature, and if you do good deeds and meditate and you'll reach this nirvana, which is, it's kind of very non-theistic, you know, there is no God with beard or without beard, there is no male or female entities to be taken into account, and it sounds very comfortable. It's like when I go to the toilet, I don't have the sensation that some old man is looking down at me while I'm sitting on my toilet, and therefore I feel that my life is more private because of that. The same thing is valid if I'm going into Vedanta. Oh, according to Vedanta, this highest principle of the universe is called Brahman. Brahman is a word which means the absolute or it, and therefore it's a thing. It's like a primordial light. It's like, uh, we could as well call it like this uh, unified field of energy of Albert Einstein. Yes, there exists at a higher level some sort of divine light some sort of light of all light, spirit of all spirit, energy of all energies, some undifferentiated supreme uh, ocean without waves of undifferentiated... Right, that is God. Good, excellent. Yeah, I can accept that, right? That, that there is uh, something which is there, but it's not something personal which is going to tap me on the shoulder one day and say, hey, sunny boy, what are you doing down there, right? And therefore, I can again go to the toilet in peace because nobody is watching over my shoulder. These views of early Buddhism, of Vedanta and others of the like, they are actually refuted by the great gurus of India as well as by the great tantrics of India as incomplete paradoxically. Because these people say, you don't see the trees because of the forest. You are looking at what makes the divine consciousness, and you call it void, Buddha nature, Brahman, Prakasha, light of light, energy of energies, ocean of spirit, or whatever, and you do not see that it has a face. If you zoom back a little bit, there is a shell to it. This ocean of something is formless, and with form, they first of all say like this, wait a second, if this divine consciousness would be condemned to be only formless, nameless, transcendent, that it will, then it will be in a certain way impotent, incapable. You could simply go to God and say, God, Brahman, Buddha nature, teasing you, you cannot have a form, you are somewhere there, and what kind of omnipotent, almighty, omnipresent reality would that be if it would not have the possibility to have an interface with this world? After all, we are all made of consciousness. We are all the product of consciousness. We are all the product of I am. Who am I? I am Atman. I am spirit, I am the Buddha nature, I am the void, whatever kind of answer you prefer to give there. But wait a second, this Atman that I am, or you can say, well, maybe I am not a perfect exponent of Atman. Okay, let's take Swami Shivanandan, let's take uh, Abhinavagupta, let's take uh, 
Sri Ramakrishna or Aurobindo, somebody who is claimed to have been a real perfect exponent of this supreme self, of this Atman nature. These people who were the Atman nature through their own extraordinary spiritual realization, didn't they at the same time in this world have a form, a shape, a personality, something which was manifested? Yes, they did, because that was their interface. Therefore, we can have the divine nature, but it may as well have a limited form which allows it to manifest in this world. But now try to think a little bit about this. Nothing comes out of nothing. If I have love, it is because my love is a reflection of the universal love. It's a drop from the ocean of universal love. If I have intelligence, it is because I am resonating with the ocean of universal intelligence. If I have spirit and consciousness, it is because I am resonating at the highest level with the Paramatman, with the Atman of the universe, with the spirit of this universe. And then, if I have a personality, isn't this because also I am resonating with a Maha personality? Nothing comes out of nothing. If love comes out of nothing, and mind comes out of nothing, and even spirit doesn't come out of nothing, then of course personality itself doesn't come out of nothing. What is it to say that I as a limited creature, I'm having an immortal, endless, formless, transcendent, beyond name and everything spirit, and I'm having a limited personality, which I'm showing to you now, through my body and my presence, and God cannot have that. Why shouldn't God have that? Therefore it appears immediately that it is absurd and blind to limit the divine nature. Some people have simply fallen into this qualitative analysis of the divine nature. Oh, this is the ocean of God. And the ocean of God is made of what? Oh, it is made of the particles of the indivisible light, of the undifferentiated. Oh, so this is what the universal consciousness is. An ocean of consciousness. Lovely. But I am not seeing the trees because I am not looking right. I have to zoom back and suddenly I'm seeing there like a gigantic face. That ocean, if I looked well at it, it contains something else like a shell, like a wrapping shell to this reality. And that I was about to lose because I analyzed only the quality and not the whole essence. And that is why the mystics of yoga, and especially the mystics of tantris, they have said it is completely nonsensical to forget the personality of God, not to give to God as well a personal interface, because then that God which you are speaking about is an incapable God. It is a God which does not have this interfacing. Of course, people can say, wait a second, the interfaces of the divine consciousness with this world are countless, because some people say this is the universal goddess or Shakti, with six arms and I don't know what. Some people will say this is the dancer, Shiva the dancer. That's the interface, that's the image. Some people say, no, it's just that old man with a white beard floating on the clouds and surrounded by angels. And whatever, whatever, which simply says, yes, at the level of the interface, 
we can speak about variable aspects because it's a manifested thing. And that is why various cultures and various traditions, they have ascribed to the divine their own interface while dealing with this nature which is transcendent. But this does not mean that because there have been different interfaces for different religions and cultures, you should automatically dismiss them all and say, I would like to take God, to tackle God, without any interface. That's very impractical and very incomplete. And that is why here Patanjali behaves as a real yogi. He says, I am approaching the nature of God as Purusha, transcendent infinite spirit, and at the same time there is this special spirit which is Ishvara, which is the creator, which is the one which is special, which is indeed the manifestation of God. In India, especially at the time of Patanjali, in theistic India, they liked very much of introducing God under the form of Ishvara. I do not have time to go now, it's not the place in such a lecture, to go now through all the personalities of God as developed by Indian culture. Some of them are typically according to Shaivism, Vaishnavism and others. Some of them are according to various levels of yoga. For example, all those of you in this school who will go through the fourth month, fifth month, seventh month and so on of our yoga courses, you are encountering the description of the chakras starting with Mulakara and up and you find out that each and every one of them is defined by a special form of consciousness, by a special form of divine consciousness which is characterized as being the God of that chakra, which simply means how does that chakra reflect into the divine consciousness. And you find out that the God of Muladhara chakra is called Brahma, Brahma the creator, and the God of Zvadhisthana is Vishnu, and the God of Manipura is Rudra or Mahadeva, a form of Shiva, and therefore you find out that all these names for the yogis had a very accurate thing because they meant a special level of a chakra and they meant the divine consciousness as filtered through a chakra. When you want to think about the muladharistic aspect of the divine consciousness, it is personified by Brahma, who is a creator because that's the power of muladhara chakra. Muladhara chakra creates and creates and creates. People who are very strong on Muladhara, they want to write books, they want to build pyramids, they want to plant trees and gardens, they want to build ashrams, they want all the time to create, to build, to build, to build, even to make children as much as a rugby team of children or whatever, just because there is this urge to create, to create, to create, to create. That is only one aspect of the divine consciousness and it is the aspect of Muladhara. But there are other aspects of the divine consciousness as well. And therefore, to make the long story short again, Ishvara is a name, is the name given in the classical yoga tradition of India of how the divine consciousness manifests through the heart chakra. That is why many Western translators of Sanskrit, when they translate Ishvara, they translate it as the Lord, as the God in Judeo-Christianity, of course, especially in the Christian tradition, because that's where most of them came from, the Lord, like the Christian God, is some sort of an Anahata Chakra God, because He is a God of 
forgiveness, of love, of mercy, and of all those things. And therefore, it's like God seen through the prism of Anahata, and then he gets a face. That face in India, while these ones, they say, well, there is no other face of God. What are you talking about? Different faces of God? No, no, we just know one, and that's good enough for us. The Indians being the inheritors of an extremely rich metaphysical and spiritual tradition, they have been more elastic and they have said, wait, there is the Muladhara personality of God, which is called Brahma, there is the Svadhisthana personality of God, which is called Vishnu, there is the Manipur, and there is the Anahata personality of God, which is called Ishvara. That Ishvara is the kind of Lord to whom you pray, who is merciful, with whom you can have a relationship of love, of surrender, of devotion, and all the rest. And that is why Ishvara is kind of the most popular, the most beloved image of God, and we can say even the most classic. It also comes from the fact that the Indian mystics and the Indian nation as a whole had for centuries a very clear predominance on Anahata Chakra, and the Indians, whenever they did spirituality, they did it very much from Anahata, like everything through Anahata. A little bit of Bhajan, a little bit of Kirtan, even today when some great masters are teaching Vipassana, for example in India, I've seen this movie about Vipassana in Indian prisons, and they do this Vipassana which in a certain way is very dry, very severe, very austere, and in the last day what do they do? A bit of Kirtan and Bhajan, you know? Let's re-become Indians again. We do ten days of Vipassana, but in the eleventh day, let's cry our soul out to God. And the effects are actually marvelous. People have been ten days in purification. When they start singing devotional songs in the eleventh day, they crack completely. They start crying. They start having a lot of mystical experiences because of this Indian specificity. This is an Indian typical thing to twist things to Anahata. It's not only Indians who have done this. There are other nations on this earth which are talented at Anahata Chakra. But the Indians are very classic and they are also very famous and they have this super vast spirituality which they generated to the world. And that is why Patanjali gives us a God, an interface of God, which is Anahata, the Anahata God, the God of the heart, the God of the soul, the God of love, of mercy, and of empathy, and all the others, and that is therefore simply an interface. Somebody can say, I have been completely fascinated by Kashmir Shaivism, I love this interface of God as Shiva, this God which is eternally young, dancing the universe, super pure consciousness, and for me that's a wonderful interface. Then it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. The interface is only partly valid. It is true that some of these interfaces are a bit more painful, a bit more severe, a bit more this and that. We cannot stretch in going too much into that. Fact is that suddenly here Patanjali starts presenting a personal, non-personal image of God. He is very wise in this way. He talks to us about the transcendent, but he actually does not forget the immanent, the manifested thing. And this shows Patanjali as being more complete. Some of the things which Patanjali says are more complete 
even than spiritual theories and presentations of other great mystics of this planet who failed to mention one or the other. Some mystics mention only the manifested part of God, like there is nothing formless, nameless, transcendent, and those people are usually presenting us with a religion which is low-grade, a kind of a religion which is almost a superstition or a cult, and many of these religious religions of today, they are this kind, where you never think in a Christian church about God as being transcendent, nameless, formless, part of all the gods and of everything of this universe. No, it's this particular God and there is nothing else. And on the other hand, there are people who forgot the personal aspect and they think only about the fact that God is just some pure energy and there is nothing else to it. The truth is in the middle, as they say. That means there is a little bit of each. There is a formless, nameless, transcendent part, which is the Purusha part, and there exists a manifested part, which is a shell, an interface to us, and which is a kind of divine personality, which at the same time is accessible to the human spirit. And Patanjali demonstrates here real skillfulness because he does not fall in the mistake of the Vedantins of jumping just to a trans... He is very theoretical, he is very intellectual, he is very metaphysical. He could so easily say, oh, it's just some Purusha which is transcendent and that's the end of it. But no, he speaks about God about as about Ishvara, a special spirit which is having a special status in this universe and therefore he opens the gate for transcendence and immanence. This makes the presentation of Patanjali remarkable, although Patanjali himself does not follow it up in all its implications because then he would build up a thoroughly tantric system out of this. He, some places he stops, he doesn't go all the way, but at least at this level, he has already told us a very important truth by describing this complex nature of God, by describing this dual unity in duality that we are having, this multiple relationship with the divine. And he continues by some beautiful sutras defining the nature of this divine consciousness like showing us what the real goal is. Unfortunately, there is no more time, so I will leave those to be able to commend them thoroughly and with soul. Uh, I will leave them for our next presentation, which most probably is again on Friday. Uh, with this, we are stopping here at the Sutra number 24, where Patanjali has defined Ishvara, the universal consciousness, in its dual form. It is enough for tonight. And before we conclude, let us spend a few minutes in a silent meditation at the level of Ajna Chakra and Sahasrara for allowing these aspects to get deeper in the subconscious mind. So a bit of meditation before we stop, and then we'll conclude tonight's meeting.